Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Throughout this summer, children in Texas's youth prison system have repeatedly been trapped in their cells, forced to urinate in water bottles and defecate on the floor. Calls for immediate action by juvenile justice advocates and dozens of lawmakers to address the crisis have largely gone unanswered by Governor Greg Abbott. Last month, the governor's office said the safety of staff and youth at TJJD was a top priority for him. He touted the agency's recent pay raise, funded largely by agency officials siphoning cash from the plethora of vacant officer positions. And he promised to support further salary boosts during next year's legislative session. In May and June, more than a dozen detained youths at Giddings State School said officers didn't let them out of their cells to use bathrooms between 4.30 p.m. and 8 a.m. during the week due to stored staffing. On the weekends, without teachers and case managers to fill in for vacant officer positions, youths were sometimes kept in their cells 22 hours a day. During monthly inspections, the children told the independent ombudsman for the Texas juvenile system that they had no choice but to use water bottles, milk cartons, lunch trays, or pieces of paper as makeshift toilets. It's inhumane, a youth told inspectors. Even animals are let out. In June, the ombudsman reported that only 60 officers out of 140 needed were available to work at the lockup. At the Gainesville State School in North Texas, Youth reported in May that staff gave them cups to use as toilets in their cells. In their June report from the Giddings Prison, inspectors noted, the youth's right to be free from psychological harm appeared to have been violated. A 35-year-old man incarcerated at Rikers Island died Wednesday, marking the 14th death in New York City custody this year and the 30th since the beginning of 2021. Kevin Bryan's death is under investigation. He had been held at Rikers for less than a week on a $5,003 bail on burglary charges. The death comes after the regulatory body overseeing city jails, the City Board of Correction, released a report this week detailing how officers' failure to check on cells, render first aid, and escort incarcerated people to medical appointments had a role in at least six suicides and four drug overdoses inside Rikers' walls last year. The mother of Brandon Rodriguez, who died by suicide at Rikers last year, released a statement through the advocacy organization Freedom Agenda, saying, It seemed as though city officials did not care about the continued deaths. Quote, Doing nothing equals more death, she said. The humans on Rikers are screaming for help. Is anyone going to help them? Advocates and attorneys for the incarcerated are seeking a federal takeover of the city's jails, saying officials cannot keep detainees safe. Damian Williams, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, could request such a federal monitor. He visited Rikers Island last week. A judge could consider a formal takeover recommendation as early as November. Meanwhile, the city jail population is ballooning. There are about 5,712 people currently in Department of Correction custody, according to Comptroller Brad Lander, up 9% since the beginning of the year, when Mayor Eric Adams directed the NYPD to curb crime with more arrests. 
This week, we share a recorded discussion hosted by the Civil Liberties Defense Center. CLDC has been at the forefront of anti-repression legal work for decades now, working on many of the Green Scare cases, in which the FBI infamously hounded and smashed radical environmental organizing between 2000 and 2008. In this discussion, Hava and Lauren speak with Letha, a longtime supporter for Marius Mason, who was the last remaining Green Scare prisoner. Marius is a former Bloomington resident whose public organizing and clandestine acts of sabotage in the 1990s presaged many of the ecological concerns which have now become global issues as we face climate catastrophe. Marius was harshly sentenced to almost 23 years in prison for acts of sabotage against logging, highway construction, water privatization schemes, and corporate genetic engineering. He came out as a trans man while inside and is being held at the federal prison in Danbury, Connecticut. Hi, and welcome to everyone joining us today. Uh, my name is Hava Shapiro, and I am the engagement specialist for the Civil Liberties Defense Center, which is located in Eugene, Oregon. And I am really excited to have this event today that's focused on movement prisoner and trans activist, Marius Mason. And today we're gonna move through just kind of a a brief introduction of remarks with Lauren Regan, our executive director and senior staff attorney, who has um, a long history and connection with Marius. And then we're gonna move into a conversation um, with Letha, who is here from the Support Marius Mason Committee and one of the supporters um, who does long-term support for him. So I'll turn it over to you first, Lauren, and then we'll go from there. Thanks, Hava. So I was part of the original legal team that defended the non-cooperating activists during the Green Scare, which basically started in terms of like FBI and um, arrests and the actual overt state repression in around 2003 to like the 2005 time period. But the FBI had been sniffing around at um, economic sabotage actions, um, probably starting back in like 1997. And so I think it was around 2005 or 2006 that I first met Marius. Um, and when we first began to le learn that Marius's ex-husband, Frank Ambrose, had become a snitch and the, the details behind that, that basically led to Marius being ensnared in a time period where um, the government was incapable of finding actual quote unquote terrorists. You know, this was shortly after the 9-11, um, you know, planes flying into buildings and killing hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, the government and the FBI were incapable of actually addressing, you know, crimes that actually caused lost lives and things like that. And so in order to like distract American attention from that, they basically found a group of environmental and animal rights activists that had been engaged in a long tradition of economic sabotage and basically began to paint them as quote unquote domestic terrorists or eco-terrorists uh, in order to sort of win the media war um, within the mainstream media that they, um, you know, controlled. And so 
I realized that that's almost 20 years ago now. Um, and there are lots of folks that have not really um, heard much about what, what the Green Scare was or is and who the individuals involved were. And especially for Marius, uh, you know, they endured the longest sentence of any of the um, Green Scare defendants in any of the cases around the country. In fact, um, you know, they are the only person that is still imprisoned right now um, connected to the Green Scare. And so I wanted to start off by sharing with you a little bit about who this person was and, and is before they were incarcerated. And so um, as we were working up Marius's case, you know, I asked them to give me basically like a list of the above ground work that they had done in their life um, to sort of balance out the allegations that were being made, you know, with regard to their participation in quote unquote arsons. And so Marius sent me a six page single spaced document that included a gold standard list of environmental, animal rights, and social justice um, activities that they'd been involved in starting in the 1980s. So I wanted to like quickly read off some of the things that they listed at that time. So in the 1980s, they were living in Detroit, Michigan. They started a public interest research group uh, including raised the funds, started the chapter, hired staff. They were the chair of it. Um, then they basically became a staff writer for the Fifth Estate, which is the longest running English language anarchist paper in the United States. They worked um, in a neighborhood group called the Evergreen Alliance. They worked on the Zero Discharge Alliance. Um, they worked for Greenpeace. They worked for Seeds of Peace, um, for fighting um, nuclear proliferation on the Shoshone Reservation at that time. They worked for the Zebra Mussel Alliance. They uh, worked for an Earth First project called the Fermi 2 Action Project. Um, that basically coordinated a series of direct actions to demand the closure of a nuclear power plant. They worked for Food Not Bombs. Um, they worked for Seeds of Peace again. They worked for the Industrial Workers of the World. Um, they started a group called ADAPT, which stood for Animals Deserve Adequate Protection Today and Tomorrow. Uh, they did Big Mountain Support. In the 2000s, now we're moving a decade ahead. That was all in one decade. In the 2000s, they worked for the Secret Sailor Bookstore, which was a community organizing space and bookstore. Um, they organized conferences and skill shares and nonviolence trainings and public meetings and things like that. They started volunteering for Pages to Prisoners, um, which was organized prisoner uh, solidarity work. They volunteered with Heartwood doing state forest protection campaigns. They volunteered with Buffalo Trace Earth First. They worked on the Stop I-69 campaign, which was um, a NAFTA superhighway that was gonna cross through the United States through family farms and wetlands. They started working on an anarchist collective called No Borders. Um, that brought together the IWW, Earth First, Permaculture, and Women's Groups to organize together. 
And hopefully you're starting to see the trend of uh, Marius being way before their time in terms of intersectional and cross-movement organizing. Um, they worked for the Mutual Aid Society, the Detroit Neighborhood and Family Initiative, Michigan Welfare Rights Union, Highland Park Human Rights Coalition, um, another Earth First group, a Dandelion Health Collective, um, a Garden Project, and and you know, and many more than that. And I was doing a, a lot of public speaking around that time, trying to educate the public and kind of counter the government's narrative around who these amazing humans are. Um, and to sort of push back on, you know, the bullshit that the feds were putting out there. And so I was speaking at a conference and asked Marius um, to give me a little statement uh, to say at that conference. And this is back in 2009, I believe. Um, and this is uh, what they wrote. Um, first, they gave me two quotes to read. The first from P.B. Floyd. Although no one ever knows at the time whether their action will succeed or fail, it is obvious that if all those historical figures hadn't made the effort or taken the trouble, if they had assumed that their efforts wouldn't work, nothing would have changed. And then the second quote was from Leonard Peltier, and it says, in this sad and tragic age we live in, to come to the defense of Mother Earth is to be branded a criminal. And so then Marius went on to say, we must dare much as so much is at stake, and we must be willing to learn also as a movement. This is the perfect opportunity for activists to share stories and insights. This helps us all evolve as we struggle to transform society and protect this earth. I hope as part of the work that you do that you will claim the history of the eco defenders who've become eco prisoners. My actions taken on behalf of the Earth Liberation Front were an important part but not the totality of my political work. I worked in many grassroots neighborhood groups and several more mainstream nonprofit organizations as well. Through it all though, I shared with you a great love for the natural world and a deep empathy for my fellow human beings. We are together a part of the historic process of positive change in this country. As dissent becomes more challenged legally, it becomes even more crucial morally. Thank you for all you continue to do to defend the earth. My love and faith are with you always. So that was their statement. And then I just also, so I think most people probably know, but just in case you don't, Marius was sentenced on February 5th of 2009 in the Western District of Michigan, which is a super conservative uh, jurisdiction. The prosecutor was a U.S. attorney named Frank Hagen. Marius's lawyer's name was John Minnick. And the judge um, that sentenced him is Judge Paul Maloney. The plea agreement that Marius agreed to uh, had them pleading guilty to three counts. One was conspiracy to commit arson in the Western District of Michigan. Two was an aggravated arson in the Southern District um, of Michigan. And the third count was arson in the Southern District of Indiana. 
most of the non-cooperating defendants and the defendants that were similarly situated to Marius, you know, they had committed about the same number of actions, got basically between seven and a half and 14 years of prison. That was sort of the range of the Green Scare cases for cooperating co-defendants that had like an equal number. For Marius at their sentencing, on count one and four, the sentencing range was 240 months. On count two, the aggravated arson, the sentencing range was 360 to 480 months. Those were the advisory guidelines, which were significantly higher than any of the guideline ranges that were in any other part of the country. Ultimately, the judge uh, sentenced Marius to 240 months on count one, 262 months on count two, and 180 months on count three. Luckily, those to run concurrent, but that is why Marius is still incarcerated over 20 years. The other significant uh, aspect of Marius's sentencing, well, there's two other significant aspects. One, um, the judge did impose the terrorism sentencing enhancement. This is basically like the frosting on the cake of sentencing. Uh, it basically allows for up to 20 years more punishment, but it also like gravely ups the security levels for their actual imprisonment. The other significant aspect of Marius's sentence, and to my knowledge, they are the only person who has been sentenced in this way in like my 25 years of defending activists. The judge ruled that upon release, the defendant shall be placed on supervised release for a term of life. So once Marius gets out of prison, they are forced to be on federal post-prison supervision for the remainder of their life. In addition, the court ruled that Marius must pay $4.13 million in restitution in monthly payments. So that's kind of the terms of the sentence. And the last thing that I wanted to share with you before I turn it over to the other folks, we can, I've got lots of documents pulled up about Marius if anybody's got more detail or more questions. But I wanted to read a little bit from their sentencing statement because I think not only does it speak to who they are, were, um, but it also just you know shows some of the um, prescient aspects of um, of why they did what they did. But I also do want to like couch this. This is a statement that is read or, you know, delivered to the judge prior to the imposition of punishment. Normally defendants that have uh, all their faculties about them are aware that this is not a moment to be their most honest and um, radical selves. So, you know, just keep that in, in context. So Maria says, um, at the time, I feared there were dire and immediate threats to both human and non-human lives and that the health and safety of human communities as well as the ecological integrity of the earth were in jeopardy. I care deeply about my fellow human beings and the other living creatures with whom we share this planet. 
I felt responsible to take extreme action in the hope that it would save lives and halt deadly practices that directly threatened living beings and contributed to the degradation of the environment. I thought that what I was doing would shine a light on these dangerous policies so that an informed public dialogue would ensue and policies would change through democratic process. For more than 20 years, I've participated in every legal avenue open to me as a private citizen to educate and persuade government officials and corporate representatives, my fellow citizens, and to reconsider policies. I've also participated in many civil disobedient actions in a style taught by Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi, whose nonviolent teachings I embraced. Given my commitment to nonviolence, it was only under an extreme set of circumstances that I rationalized my actions. I want to explain that the more I learned of the consequences of deforestation and genetic engineering, the more desperate I felt. I'm not opposed to conducting research in the interests of expanding knowledge and bringing improvements to health and well-being when it is conducted in a responsible and humane way. I've also participated in research at Wayne State University in a responsible way to try and find better ways to recycle plastics. But genetic engineering research is often conducted in open air situations that release contaminated pollen into the environment with devastating effects. Here's the part that I, when I was rereading it today, I kind of made the hair on the back of my neck stand up a little bit. So the threat posed to all of us by global warming for which the world's forests act as a buffer against is direct and dramatic. The increase in catastrophic storms that caused so much death and destruction in New Orleans and in many parts of Asia are attributable directly to the erratic warming of the planet. Forests sequester carbon and cool the planet, and as we lose them, we lose the time we need to find new and more sustainable ways of fulfilling our energy needs before global climate crisis is unavailable. Despite my despair, I have never felt entitled to cause physical harm in order to protect life. And then, um, I hope to protect my community and the earth, to respond in defense to the living systems of animals, land, and water. I tried to preserve the natural world from destruction because it is all of our home, because its health is necessary for all of us to live well. I have failed to bring about the changes that I sought and caused harm where I had intended none, and I am saddened and sorry for that. My hope is that the next generation that inherits this earth and the responsibility for stewardship will succeed in finding better methods to bringing about the evolution of our society, a transformation that will benefit all of us who share this beautiful earth. And just a reminder, like that, that was in 2009, you know, over a decade, you know, 13 years ago, long before climate change was, you know, really openly being organized around and, um, you know, was becoming part of our uh, public vernacular. Uh, and so with that, I will turn the mic over to the next person. Thank you so much, Lauren, for sharing all of that. It's pretty incredible to hear Marius's, like, essentially CV of all of his movement involvement um, leading up to the time of his arrest and now subsequent incarceration. It's a powerful reminder that when we talk about movement prisoners, when we talk about political prisoners, we're talking about people who have been long embedded in the movements that are still ongoing. And Marius is still a part 
of those movements and still continues in struggle with people um, despite immense restrictions on his communication. Like Lauren had mentioned, um, that terrorism enhancement has put him in a position where it's intentionally difficult for him to continue to be a part of the movements that he has been a part of for so many years. But we're really excited to have um, Letha here today with us. So I wanted to just share a little bit about Letha before I turn it over to this conversation we're gonna have today. So for nearly 25 years, Letha has been an animal liberation advocate in 2005, her organizing focus shifted to prison abolition, and since then she has engaged in mutual aid, grassroots and nonprofit organizing around issues of food insecurity, intimate partner violence, sex work, and anti-racism. She lives in South Philadelphia now with her feline roommates, Gus and Creep, which are really good cat names. And I think we're gonna do this kind of in a conversational style, but I was hoping to kick us off, you would just tell us a little bit of more of that background on Marius. We heard a lot about the political work that he was involved in, but if there's anything in particular that you would wanna highlight about his work prior to incarceration and anything else you wanna highlight about the background of his case. Yeah, I mean, Lauren really covered it all. Um, but yeah, I think it's also worth knowing that in the time period that he was doing all of this, um, you know, I, I had highlighted just uh, Greenpeace, labor organizing, the IWW, um, books to prisoners. He's been vegan for several decades. He also has two children. He's also been close to his sister and his mother. And he has, you know, grown up in Detroit, but had moved several times, mostly within the Midwest, so including Indiana, and I eventually met him in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I think a, a lot more people did come to know about Marius's case and story and experience through his transition. I think a lot of people knew about Marius within environmental or anarchist movements, but then through his transition within prison, I just heard so many more people through the International Day of Solidarity with Trans Prisoners coming to know and hear about Marius. So I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about that process, about what it looked like for him in transitioning while at, um, at the time was at a women's facility, um, FMC Carswell, and out in Texas, and just Anything that you think Marius would want for all of us to know and hear about that process? Yeah, of course. Um, okay, so I ended up writing down for the first time sort of the years of events that involved his transition. And it seems very, looking down at it, it seems like it's been, I guess, like productive or moving along in some sort of pace. But I know that for us as friends and, and especially Marius, obviously, it has been moving at a pace that is just devastating for him in, in many ways. So Marius came out in 2014 as a trans man. Um, so he used he him pronouns um, and he changed his name. But prior to that, actually in 2013 is when the Bureau of Prisons diagnosed him with gender dysphoria. Uh, it was in 2016, so again, he came out in 2014, but it wasn't until 2016 that he was first given a T shot. Then in 2017, uh, he was transferred to the uh, out of the administrative unit. So initially, he was in a very small unit of only 12 other people. And so his 
his coming out was only to that very small collection of people while incarcerated. Um, and then the few uh, people who worked in that unit. Uh, but he was moved into general population um, or essentially general population of FMC Carswell. Then eventually in 2019, he was transferred to Danbury, Connecticut, so he could be closer to friends and family, because uh, most of us live up here. Then in September 2021, he was transferred to a men's facility. And so that's where we are now. Thanks to CLDC for organizing this important discussion and for all of their work. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.